it boils down to execution. Everyone wants to win and they want to score big. They want to have a defining moment. Whether you're a failing school or a very successful school, everyone pretty much has the same goals. The difference is execution. Welcome back to Wise Words, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds in education and beyond. My name is Basim. I'm the producer of the show. And who you just heard speaking was our guest speaker, Ted Fujimoto, president of Landmark Consulting Group. At WISE, many of our programs aim to highlight or encourage innovation. For instance, the WISE Accelerator, which has now opened its 2020 call for applications. It's an opportunity for edtech founders to build and scale innovative solutions that positively impact the world of learning. We're looking for entrepreneurs with a unique solution in edtech. If that sounds like you, why not apply? Those admitted in this one-year program can develop their ventures with the support of our global community made up of entrepreneurs, investors, and education leaders. Now, when discussing innovation, everyone would agree that innovation in the education space is critical to improve the quality of adaptable learners and making sure future generations are prepared to face the ever-evolving work environment. The good news is that innovative education projects are taking shape across the globe. The question is, what is the most effective way to scale this innovation? After we spoke to Ted, we may have cracked the code. Ted is an entrepreneur and expert in leadership development and organizational redesign. Ted's experience in entrepreneurship and leadership development helped him provide guidance for the launch and expansion of the organization that evolved into what is now known as the New Tech Network and the growth of big picture learning. This network has become famous for its speed scaling across the U.S. Stick around to listen to the full conversation. And as always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy the show, be sure to let us know by reaching out to us on our social media handles. You can find the links in the description. I would define myself as a entrepreneur first and foremost. I launched my first company at age 18, my freshman year of college. Our first clients that built the cell phone networks in many countries, also LVMH and Remy Martin. Once once you have that entrepreneurial bug, I think, and you start your career that way, it's it's hard to uh, do anything else. And what what was it about your background you feel that sort of gave you that gave you that bug? You know, that's a that's a really good question. Um, you know, what gave me that bump is probably a few things. Um, one is I did grow up as an expat uh, kid. I spent a few years as a teenager in in Japan. Yeah, and so you know, when you when you are in a foreign country uh, during your developmental years, or at least part of your developmental years, or you spent any kind of significant time abroad. It does shift your perspective of you look at the world differently. You look at people differently. You look at opportunities and risk differently. As a kid, the ability to walk into a room, not understand the language, not knowing what people were saying, but getting a sense of the character of people. Um, those are often skills that kids get when uh, spending some time abroad. I think that's one. Um, the second factor is exposure to all kinds of interesting experiences that inspire you to look for problems to solve. Uh, my parents were you know, unusual um, in many ways to other parents that encouraged me to explore things I was interested in. As an example, I was interested in astronomy. So they weren't rich. They you know, were pinching, uh, you know, be very careful with their m- uh, money, but uh, they would try to do the very, very best to uh, try to encourage it. So I was inst- interested in astronomy and they got me a telescope, you know, in- included stuff that Eventually, I didn't do as well uh, and abandoned. But you know, their their advice was: whatever you do, do it well as best of your ability. But you know, if it's not for you, uh, move on. And I think that curiosity has served me well, and it's a common thing I, I see around uh, many people who are entrepreneurs and have launched many things. Yeah, and it's, it's the it's the freedom also to sort of experiment try different things, different things out and see what 
uh, what sticks. When coming to think about it, I think there's probably a third thing that also impacted because there's lots of things that you as a kid can experiment with, but how do you know what good is actually good or what, you know, as far as the bar, right? It, it seems like every time I explored something, I was exposed to people who happened to be pretty good at what they did or, you know, world-class people in some of those fields. When I was a teenager, I was very much into BMX freestyle um, bicycle riding, right? And I used to ride um, 36 miles a day. Uh, it was pretty hardcore and I was exposed to one of the top champions in the world and got to ride with them for a week, right? When I was in computers, I happened to be in Tokyo at the time that Apple Computers was introducing, they had introduced the Lisa, and then they started to introduce the first Macintosh. And uh, the distributor, head of the, um, the GM of that distributorship that was key to Apple befriended me and invited me in to play with the new stuff that they got from Apple. So... There was these very weird, maybe not by coincidence, things that exposed me to people doing world-class work early on, which then, you know, you say, okay, if you're going to really pursue something, this is how these successful people operate. Yeah, this is, this is what excellence looks like in, in that particular field. How did you then go from sort of finance and logistics to look at education? What sort of turned you on to, to that as a, as a sector? What got me into education, I would call it more by accident um, and necessity. <laughs> um, the accident part is that um, school and me did not get along. It was oil and water. It, it was, I, I, I got through school, you know, with reasonable grades, but I figured out the shortest path to get through the pain. Um, in high school, that meant skipping a grade. Um, in elementary school, I skipped a few grades. And then in college, it was sometimes just going to a few, uh, going to classes and taking just the midterm and the final and skipping all the rest of the classes. I mean, it was torture for me because, uh, and I can, even my, you know, looking back at college, um, I can think of probably two or three classes that ha I can say, you know, that really helped me in my professional career. The rest of it, <laughs> you know, even to this day, I just shake my head and say, you know, that for the amount of time, that was a waste. So that's the irony of this. And the necessity part of it was I had moved my company from Silicon Valley to um, Napa Valley, where I'm from. And Napa is a beautiful region, Northern California, known for their uh, wineries and and uh, great and you know it's an exotic area. But what people don't remember is it was, especially at that time, a farm town. People grew grapes, <laughs> um, and there were tech companies that all had decided to relocate there. So I was one of six uh, companies that all had made that decision at that time to relocate for. You know, really beautiful place to live and family-friendly environment. But it was a farm town and we could not find even the basic employees to be able to grow with the basic skills. And it got to a point where we were all talking about the need to maybe having to relocate again because this was not going to be sustainable and to grow companies in, in this region. We ended up meeting with the school board of that of the local district who had expressed interest in connecting with employers and potential employers to see how they could partner and improve the education system and long story short the first project that uh, came about was uh, somehow I ended up becoming the designer of what is now known as the Napa New Technology High School. Even the, the way that the projects were run, we had copied our project management uh, server that we used for my company and the protocols that uh, our teams used as here's how we run projects. And much of that was infused into uh, what is you know, now widely known as uh, project-based learning. Um, I won't claim that you know we designed project-based learning to end-to-end -end because it went through so many iterations. But I can tell you some of the framework of here's how 
really amazing, healthy, creative, highly productive uh, teams work. And uh, some of that DNA is uh, what is kind of the New Tech Network's uh, PBL methodology. And, and as you as you reflect back to what it was that you didn't like about your education experience, was it the sort of absence of immediate application of the knowledge that you were... I mean, what was it that didn't sit well with you and then led you to to think about or to adopt a, a project-based learning approach when you were designing your, your school network? You know, uh, the thing about traditional school that really wasn't helpful to me, and, and I got along with, I would say, 80% of the teachers, you know, and, and I would say I had healthy relationships with 80% of the teachers. Um, you know, we all have that minority that we just don't get along, right? And uh, But uh, the relationships were there um, and they were all very helpful to me and trying to encourage me in their way. Uh, and I see this to this day is that, you know, education talks about trying to prepare kids for the real world. They talk about all these goals, even social-emotional learning and the idea of leadership and communication and, uh, and some of these other skills, none uh, other than academics that are important. And you know, those are all the right goals for sure. But the distance between what they talk about and their goal to actual practice of high-performance teams and companies that you experience in real life today is like a chasm. It's like a it's a huge chasm. Uh, there's very few people in education that have uh, have the perspective to actually bridge that because there's nothing in their exposure on a daily basis that will allow for that or in their training. Uh, and oftentimes, even the ones that were good, uh, people who were in industry, oftentimes they've been a decade out of industry. And that sector has you know, significantly changed over that time um, from when they might have left. So put it this way, it is really hard for someone in the industry to keep up and to innovate in the right way that you're not jumping off a cliff, but I mean, building some kind of structural advantage to lead their sector. It is so intense. It's a, it's a 24-7 mental and team exercise to figure out you know, what, kind, what do we need to iterate on to figure out how we navigate in this changing world. And that level of intensity, you don't see that um, even just a time and space and the exposure to be able to do that in the education system. So naturally, they start to fall behind. I mean, if I were to play devil's advocate a little bit, though, I mean, it sounds to me, though, that to a certain extent, you're subordinating education and schooling to the specific needs of a particular industry. I mean, what about some of the sort of broader objectives of education? I, you know, ideas like uh, like citizenship, you know, or or ethics. Where do those fit into the the model that you're describing? That that's a really insightful um, question, and I think it when you start to look at world class teams and world class companies, and that uh, bridge over multi generations of company leadership. I think what you'll find in common is that all of the, you know, the the number one thing that they're trying to look for in team members is not the technical skills necessarily because those evolve and change very quickly and those can be taught. We did not expect, for example, um, Napa New Technology High School to train kids on the proprietary technologies um, and our, all our techniques that we were using that gave us our competitive advantage. But the one, the, the things that were important is we needed kids who knew how to problem solve, who knew how to collaborate with team members and external partners to help solve those problems, uh, to be able to organize themselves and run a really good uh, functioning team to be able to create a culture um, and maintain a culture that was important to our company. And I would say it's a culture around trust, respect, and responsibility and basically holding each other accountable, not necessarily for the goals, but for simply do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. And 
because, you know, oftentimes we'll have lofty goals, but we had no idea if we're going to hit those or not because we're being, you know, we're in an innovative, innovative space in doing things that no one else has tried before. So yeah, it's a great direction, but we had no idea whether we would arrive at the goal. So we could never hold a team member or even a team um, accountable for meeting a goal, but we could definitely hold them accountable for their execution in their attempt of, of getting to that goal. You know, those are the, that mindset and culture becomes so important in innovation. It is the edge that enables a company to lead its sector over the long term. And it's very different than what education tries to do. You know, when, when I work with educators today, the probably the number one thing that gets in their way. I mean, we talk about school culture and having the need to have healthy relationships and all of those things. Those are great goals, but how do you actually accomplish that? It can't just happen out of good intention. There has to be a, a, a very deliberate way to, to make that happen. You have to create the sacred time and space to allow for that to happen. You have to have the right conversations with each other to build that trust, respect, and responsibility. You have to have a culture that is not top down and everyone is afraid to not meet their benchmarks, you know, as far as goals, but rather being more execution based accountability where, you know, they can decide what is a reasonable course of action and hold each other accountable for simply doing what they say they're going to do. And those are those very basic principles that good project based learning you know, incorporated in, in how, um, for example, um, New Tech Network, PBL, has evolved. I mean, as, as I hear you talk, Ted, I, I, it sounds to me an awful lot like, you know, the, 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 some of the benefits you're describing in this approach remind me of the benefits of team sports. The idea of, you know, of working together, of having a, a sort of a culture of performance, of supporting each other, of being responsible for what it, what it is that you are responsible in, in, for in that, in that team. Were you in any way sort of inspired by team sports or was the inspiration for this purely from a business standpoint? Most of the sports I was involved with is more individual sports. Um, so I would say it was more about the business problem that was at hand. And I, I guess one of the things that was an impression on me is uh, working with my first clients. Um, one was Remy Martin um, and, and uh, then AirTouch Communication, which, which became Vodafone and Verizon, one of the big cell phone networks. They were a client of mine when they were just a small office. Like Remy Martin had a team of literally three people that eventually grew to over 33% of market share within five years of the segment that they had pursued. AirTouch Communications had a small group of about 50 people and they went up to 600 people and installing cell phone networks from scratch in 58 countries over a decade period of time. And, and the people were my clients. And I saw how they worked and how much they could accomplish as a, even a small team and how that team laid the groundwork for a larger platform and a larger team. And, and I think that you, you see some common patterns about how people work, whether it's in uh, luxury goods or in cell phone networks. Education has been one of those sectors where uh, innovation and change have been difficult to scale. But you've your network, the New Tech High School Network, you started with one school in 1996, and you're now at over 200 schools, and you're opening around 20 to 40 schools a year, if I'm not mistaken. How did you crack the code of scaling innovation in, in education? So one of the experiences uh, that I had early on is I had another client, a group called Dice Group. And they are were the consulting company that uh, came up with the Saturn car company uh, retail experience. They designed um, that retail experience and they end up helping redesign worldwide um, 11 automotive and hospitality retail networks. And they, so they worked you know, with Ritz Carlton, they worked with BMW, Mercedes. The business problems there was how do you get a bunch of multi-generational car dealers uh, to do something completely different with a completely different culture and mindset on how they 
relate to their customers? And how do you replicate that 1,100 times in a seven-year period? Or there was a period of time where Ritz-Carlton was doubling the number of locations. And most of those locations were on resort islands where they were the first five-star resort. And they were hiring um, literally almost the entire island who lived in huts. And yet on day one, they had to deliver a five-star world-class experience. And this firm had a 35-year history of helping large-scale thing uh, groups tackle that problem. When I sold my technology companies, I ended up uh, helping put together a venture group to um, buy this consulting company out. Uh, the owner was retiring. If I learned anything that really had an impact on, on my learning and my philosophy and replication and scale, it was that the idea of the power and the importance of mindset and culture, where you cannot let that to leave that to just good intention, but you have to have an intentional system to guarantee that mindset and culture and as a foundation to be able to scale. That becomes a necessary foundation to solve all the other problems, whether you're running a hotel or car dealership. We ended up using that DNA to infuse into the early formation of what has now become New Tech Network. And it also infused into the DNA of how big picture learning um, has also been able to scale. Uh, and I would say it's, uh, yeah, you have goals, but it's culture first, trust, respect, responsibility, um, having sacred time and space and routines and protocols to enable people to actually build on that. And then from that, that gives the necessary platform to start solving the big problems and the little problems that can occur on a macro or micro level. I, I mean, it's, it's great to, to hear you talk about trust, respect, I mean, responsibility to a certain extent that implies a degree of autonomy that you because you know if you're going to hold people responsible and if you're going to trust them then they, they must have some scope for autonomy and decision making now most large organizations care about compliance control and minimizing risk. And that's true also to a certain extent of the education system. It's quite risk averse. It's it's concerned with compliance and meeting standards. How do you get around that in your school network? It boils down to execution. Everybody has goals. No school, no sports team has a goal to lose, right? Everyone wants to win and they want to score big. They want to have a defining moment. So whether you're failing school or a very successful school, everyone pretty much has the same goals. The difference is execution. And even when you can say, you know, a particular team member didn't pick up the technical skills they needed to be successful, well, then... You know, the question I ask is, well, why didn't they, what's getting in their way to pick up those technical skills that are needed? And it always boils down to a personal um, agency of doing what you say you're going to do, which detracts from the culture of trust, respect, and responsibility. That's where the disconnects start happening. So if, if you want high performance and scalable performance, and you can't possibly anticipate all of the compliance changes and all the, the standard changes or how the industry is evolving in the competitive forces or any of that. But what you can do is you know your team, whenever they set their mind to something and they say, we can get it done, they can get it done. Um, that, that's what boils back to the idea of execution-based accountability versus goal-based accountability. And when you have certain players in different positions, like in sports you know that certain players are very reliable in doing certain things, but you also want to cross-train them. So when there's a moment in time where you say, you know, we can take some risk with you. We know you're not the best you know, in this position, but we want to build your skill. And we think we're in a position now that you can practice that in real life. And, you know, we're not going to jeopardize our win. You know, those are, those are decisions that are, that are then made. The more reliable in a person's execution and the more you're able to have them experiment with bigger and bigger things. Say a little bit, I mean, I, I, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, this idea of creating sacred space. And I, I've heard you talk about it also on, on a couple of videos. Say a little bit about what, what do you mean by that and what's encompassed in that space and that time that you uh, call sacred. So when you look at culture, 
and uh, and I'm using the broadest possible term of culture, whether it's ethnic culture, whether it's uh, country culture, regional culture, corporate culture. You know, religion is probably you know the strongest culture that has lasted through generations and societal changes. What binds um, a culture together? Sure, it's some goals and it's some belief system, but how? Does that belief system continue throughout the generations? And if you look at that, every culture, every religion has certain sacred time and space and certain ways of using that time and space to bring people together to reinforce that belief system and to also reinforce a course of action and personal action based on that belief system. So the thing that strong cultures have in common is the use of sacred time and space. So what does that look like, you know, for example, for a company or for a school? Well, for a company, I remember um, like Ritz Carlton, you know, every, every five-star hotel prides itself on wanting to deliver on really top-level customer service. They never op- uh, open up their hotel um, wanting terrible customer service. So it's a goal. But um, one of the things that's really hard for a hotel is not only the employee turnover, but you know employees come from different backgrounds and they might have woken up on the wrong side of the bed where you know they're not in a good mood. But Ritz-Carlton knows that guest interaction one, they really do need to be on their A-game, approaching guests where the guests comes first. So they have a protocol, sacred time and space, 15 minutes a day at the beginning of every shift where um, each team worldwide um, talks about uh, their culture, ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen, and a self-reflection of how did I do that? And how did I see my team depict that value? And how? what are the opportunities for myself and my team to up our game in that idea of ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen? And the directive from there is go and use your best judgment but come back and share what you have done. Now, the very best story that comes out of the team is curated worldwide so that people have these timeless stories of what that actually looks like, legendary stories of how individual team members have exhibited that value. It's a reflection process, and it also is a what we call calibration experience, where it's really easy for us to talk about, oh, good customer service. But when you start, when you hear it in terms of a story of another team member in another hotel location and what they truly did that celebrated, it sets the high bar for, oh, that's what you actually mean. It's not just words. You actually want us to behave in that manner. And I actually have permission to do what is celebrated. You know, it's a very short protocol. In schools, um, I find that you know they have circle time among team members, similar to Ritz Carlton, uh, based on let's get our A game on, let's um, really understand the importance of connecting with our kids' relationships and with each other, and what does that mean. So it's what they talk about and how they talk about it together, and who's in that room that keeps strengthening the the culture and the relationships of that trust and respect and responsibility among a small group of people. Yeah, no, that's I mean that's great to hear. And it, it, is Ritz Carlton also known, I think, for again allowing its staff a certain amount of discretionary expenditure that they can use to solve customer problems? Oh, that's right. Um, they, they started that where um, anybody employed, doesn't matter the level of position, can spend uh, up to two thousand dollars a day. Um, I think was the last number I remember to solve guest problems, and their only obligation um, is to share it back with their with their group um, and their team and what they did and have a reflection. But otherwise, it's use your best judgment, but do share. But that, but that goes, you know, that that's an important manifestation of the trust element, meaning that the company here isn't just saying we. You know, it's not just paying lip service to trust. It's actually putting putting its literally its money where its where its mouth is by saying we you know we have confidence in you that you're going to do the right thing here. That's right. And a big distinction is that trust is given up front. It's not earned. 
to a point. They're, they have figured out ways that they feel like they can trust, they need to trust and show that trust. And of, of course, they're not going to trust a entry-level employee with a million-dollar decision. But they say, you know, this is a reasonable risk and opportunity to build that trust. And it really does show what a team member um, is capable of doing. And if they make a mistake unintentionally, well, it's a learning experience and we can afford $2,000. If they have ill will or ill intention, well, we'll figure that out after a few of these. Um, and it's a risk that we can take. So in school, like with many of the new tech schools, that's exhibited as an example um, they have kind of like a backstage concert badge, you know, uh, style um, a lanyard that kids um, get when they walk, when they get, to, when they um, enroll at the school that we call a trust card. And that trust card allows that kid to go anywhere in the building, even go to the cafeteria, get food any time of their day without asking permission. And as long as they maintain the culture of trust, respect, and responsibility and don't violate that, they have that trust card. Um, if they violate it, well, they're going to, they lose it and then they have to ask permission for everything and they have to get agreement of their peers on what it's going to take to earn that back and, you know, and, and earn that trust back. Even the most ill behaved students, they'll, they'll lose it once and never again because it's, it's such a process and they realize it's not a fake trust. It's, it's real and something to be valued and protected. No, that's, that's interesting because, you know, it, it, as, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, you know, what, what are the elements, you know, to what extent do you, do you trust you know, your teachers, what's, you know, what's the scope of their autonomy. But, but interestingly enough, I, I didn't think of the kids as being part of that, of, of the culture of, of a school, as opposed to it's, you know, being it's sort of its customers. Talk a little bit about that. You know, how, how do you view kids in the new tech network? I think they're co-learners with their teachers. At the very beginning, we call the teachers facilitators. And I think, I mean, I've been in situations where there's really great facilities and really terrible ones, right? So I think it's a it's a often misused uh, word. We don't know what it actually means, but I think that if adults and kids are there for the sole purpose of saying we have created a tremendous learning environment where everything that we need to learn and through our interests and through academics, we're pushing each other to learn as much as we possibly can. The idea that the teacher is going to have any answers or, you know, that's where things go wrong. And, and even, you know, with uh, so solving problems like discipline problems and all, it's oftentimes, you know, the, the first instinct of the adults is to take control and to start punishing the kids. When, you know, when New Tech first uh, started, that was probably the number one coaching issue when I was coaching the principal. They would say, here's what's happening at the school. We would meet for probably two or three hours a week in talking through issues. You know, this incident happened and this is what the teachers want to do is they want these rules. They want to tighten up on uh, what kids can do. And I look at that and say, you know, that's the stuff that used to make me mad as a student is I was the one doing good work and yeah, there's two to 5% of the kids that might misbehave. And then all of us got penalized for that. What's the point of being good, right? That was the, you know, the most common kind of reaction to um, when something doesn't quite go right. And what we coach the school in doing is saying, you know, let's get underneath what's causing this. When a group of small group of kids are violating the culture, what is it that they need to understand and to understand the damage that they're causing? And oftentimes those problems were solved by getting a peer group together to try to solve the problem in the, in the pressure and the problem solving and the standards that a peer group would impose on a, on a group, uh, impose on how they, they want to solve the problem was way more stringent than the, than the adults could ever get away with. Sometimes the perpetrators were the ones who established the peer group to solve the problem. I remember we had an incident in, of hacking you know, and installing unauthorized software or um, browsing websites they, they, they shouldn't see, right? And the staff was saying, you know, this is becoming a problem. We're, we're running this more and more. We actually pulled together 
the perpetrators of this is saying, you know, you know, let's talk about the issues on what damage is causing the school. The district wants to uh, impose their firewall system on the school. They want to do this, but that's not what we want. So this is the damage is causing. Show us how we need to protect the school. And what's so fascinating is um, those perpetrators they became the security experts on helping yeah. protect the school, right? Yeah, it's um, a classic set of thief uh, to catch. Yeah, a thief. and yeah. and you know, ironically, you know, a decade later, you know, companies are employing people like that to protect their networks and test their networks. So we, we just happen to be, you know, uh, accidentally figure this process out that you know, it's probably a half a decade ahead of even industry on this because that is just the way that we uh, work. And yes, there's times where adults need to make decisions, but that's where also the kids are looking for adults. They appreciate the adult experience. They, they trust the adults in, in their intention and their experience to say, we need to solve this together. We can't solve it alone as, as a group of kids. And that perspective is really important, right? It, and it applies everywhere, and especially as an entrepreneur. You know, you, the worst thing is to do is assume you know everything. Well, and what I like about these these examples also is you've, you've turned the idea of peer pressure a little bit on its head because typically we we tend to blame peer pressure for things that go go wrong or you know mis, misbehavior is you know at the root of misbehavior is often some sort of form of peer pressure. But you know you seem to have turned it on its head and in, into a sort of a tool for you know and enforcing more positive norms. Yes, absolutely. Peer pressure. You know, powerful cultures is all built around peer pressure and it's helping a group of people do what is right or what they believe in more than it's easier to do the right thing than the wrong thing, right? Based on their lens. Um, and that's existed throughout history. So it's really tapping into that to help uh, jumpstart quickly um, a healthy culture. I mean, it, it all sounds deceptively simple. It, it's you know it's like create you know create this great culture and then watch it spread. What's I mean how how do you how do you do it? Because you know I can I can see you know how you can get a you know a high performing team you can create a culture for a, for a small team, but then how do you go from that one team to two hundred teams? So it when when you look at the biology of relationships. Um, I think there's a, there's a scientist out of uh, Oxford University that's, that studied, done some studies around this. And the idea that you know, a person can really only maintain five really close relationships and the next circle is about, you add another 10 people, so 15. And a work group size is about 45 where you know everyone's roles, you have a reasonable relationship. But your core work group, and we've found this across very high-performing, innovative uh, teams across industries is it's a team of five people. And they might have, each of them might have five people. So, you know, it, you, you can do the math on that. And they're small teams. The, a cluster of 45 people can coordinate with another cluster of 45 people. And so there is a natural, um, if you get past those numbers, um, the culture starts breaking down. So many companies have just simply organized around making sure that how teams work are bite sized. So that's where, you know, in the morning circle, I would recommend having no more than 15 people in a morning circle. And there's a um, biological, log logistical reason for that. If you're spending 30 minutes for a morning circle and you have 15 people, that means that you are able to only have two minutes of interaction time per person. Two minutes, you can get a lot done, but you add 30 people into that, all of a sudden it's, you know, it's erodes from there and there's no point in having a morning circle, right? People will just go there to vent. So um, there, there are those thoughtful design processes that enable that scale. I would say the biggest challenge of scale, it's not the program practices, it's the discipline to keep that sacred time and space and those groups of people meeting because so many things start getting away, new people come and then it starts to disappear off the calendar. So the people that have been most successful, they bake it into their 
district calendars or schedules. It's mandatory. It's non-negotiable to maintain that sacred time and space. And, and I think a lot of people in innovative schools and innovative companies often underestimate the energy it takes to fend off all the bad habits of wanting to tell, just tell people what to do and set goals. Because if you think about performance management, especially accountability and high stakes accountability that hit, especially the US education system, the obsession with achievement of a goal and a benchmark, that gets you in trouble. Um, and they spend so much time doing that that everything else starts to abandon. And, and then they have the inability, they compound the issue of the inability to um, execute. And you start ending up with weird uh, problems like test fraud. Um, you end up with problems like what Wells Fargo Bank in the United States had in uh, f- fraudulent products that were being assigned to customers because uh, to meet their quotas. And people start playing a game based on the accountability system and the goals to get that rather than why they're doing it, what's important in the first place. Uh, so the biggest challenge in scale is that when people say, oh, yeah, we want to innovate, we want to scale it, they jump to practices and not realizing that you're not going to implement anything in a consistent basis if you don't have the right team culture. If you don't have a team culture, a healthy team culture for a sports team, you can talk about all of the semifinals and finals and scores you're going to win, but it's not going to happen um, just because you have that intention and goal. So, so tell me a little bit then about how how does New Tech Network think about uh, learning outcomes? What is it that you measure in that domain? So from the very beginning, the state standards and educational standards have been mapped into the projects. Um, and in real world, your clients have expectations that there's a what you said the system is going to do or whatever product or solution that you're creating is actually going to reasonably work. They might have some tolerance for a bit of messiness and some experimentation. But at the end of the day, there's some expectations that it's going to work and the performance will be there. Um, so what's, what's fascinating is that when you are you have focused the team on execution-based accountability, your planning changes because what you're team is planning is the very best route that the team sees to achieve those standards and those outcomes and those goals. And at the end of the day, they execute better. And at the end of the day, because they execute better, they get better outcomes. So for the past two decades that New Tech Network has been around, and as more and more studies of academic and um, other outcomes like graduation rates, college attendance and college persistence rates. You know, they're double digits often, you know, high single digits, double digits higher than their peers because I believe that the execution has been better. Of course, there are schools in the network that have challenges and struggle more with others. But then when you start to unpack of what they're struggling with, what they're struggling with is what I just mentioned is they haven't focused on culture enough so that the execution gets better. And then they're starting to suffer with um, erosion of that teamwork and and erosion of the trust. You know, that's a big dichotomy that I see just kind of black and white in education right now is everyone's talking about whole child and SEL, social emotional learning and project-based learning, all these things. And it is impossible to do that well unless you start with a good team culture that you trust each other. There's no other way to, to do that. Yeah, and, and do you, I mean, just on that, so when, when you see a, a team that, that starts to fray or break down, you know, I, I presume there's some sort of central headquarters function, or maybe maybe there isn't, but how do you sort of keep tabs on how well your different teams are doing? And then follow-up question would be, what kind of interventions then do you have when you see a team that might not be doing as well as you'd like them to? What I've seen the most effective is as a educational leader or a company leader, you do have a relationship with each of your teams by observing them and by seeing their level of execution, that they do do what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it. And when they start deviating from that, you know. 
And even in the most dysfunctional school systems, if you've got a group of parents and teachers and administrators in a room and say, okay, for the next hour, we're going to identify what schools are struggling in your district. You know, they might have a hard time identifying the bottom 5%, but they can name the bottom 20%. You don't need any assessment to, to tell them that. They know, right? And we have found that. So then the question is, what do you do about that when you see a team struggling? What I found to be the most powerful is to give them what we call a calibration experience. And the calibration experience is seeing and experiencing what world-class execution looks like in that arena. If, if it's a school, it's that school team going to visit and spending a day at a world-class exemplary school. If it's a subject-level team that's struggling with how do we do PBL with mathematics, well, let's have them spend an hour conversation or two-hour conversation with one of the best PBL teams in mathematics. It's and a good calibration experience is something that, you know, we've all had these where a conversation or experience, it doesn't have to be a long one, has so profoundly shifted the way you view things that even if you don't want to change, you can't help but uh, look at the world differently. You can't unsee what you saw. And that is way more powerful than any inspection protocol because you can inspect all day long. You can inspect a failing school week after week and you will see the same problems over and over and over again. And they will promise to fix whatever it is that you saw and you come back the next week. And it's sometimes sort of fixed and oftentimes it's not and it reverts back because people are might be working really hard and have the right intention to fix it, but literally they don't know how. They don't know how to put the pieces together. They don't have the experience of seeing, oh, that's how a world-class team actually works and looks like we've got to do that. And what's so fascinating is that most of the team problems can be solved by by themselves with the right calibration experience. And it doesn't cost money for those teams to solve those interpersonal problems. No, that's that's. I mean, again, this has been a fascinating discussion, Ted. I, I mean, I could I could carry on, but I'm I'm conscious uh, we're up against the the clock, and we've taken a fair amount of your time. Can I bring our conversation to a close by by asking you what do you envision for education in the in the next twenty or or so years? What what other innovations? What what would you like to see? happening to education systems around around the world in the next 20 or so years? I look forward to the future. Um, 20 years is a very, very long time. So many things we don't know how things will change society, cultures. But at the end of the day, I, you know, human experience um, and motivation and desire to be successful um, as a team or as an individual, that's something that is timeless and universal. The the few things I have seen develop over the last decade, which I think is create some new, some interesting opportunities for education in, in the next decade or two, is the the focus back on whole child and different ways of learning. That's you know that's that's healthy and it opens up opportunities for meeting kids' individual needs. So at least from a policymaker standpoint and structures, I think we're, we're seeing some loosening of the things that, um, that has constrained the education sector. But then the question becomes, what do you do about that flexibility? And what I hope will happen is that we will, since we have more and more examples of deeper learning schools like New Tech Network, Big Picture, High Tech High, and others, um, that have literally two decades plus of history is that there's enough lessons learned at scale that informs the system decisions of others. But um, what that's going to take is it's going to take a next generation of leaders and current leaders to give themselves calibration experiences to actually visit and see how these new systems look and feel and what actually uh, enables that change. And it does boil down to culture. You know, you can talk about all the attributes and program, list of things that a new tech 
school is doing or big picture learning is doing. But when you start to dig in and say, how did this happen? Then I think you always come away with, oh, it's how they have teamed, how they have formed their teams, what how they have formed their culture in an intentional way that enabled them to do all these innovative things. Because, you know, things will evolve. The programs and practices uh, at a technical level might be very different a decade or two from now. The other thing I hope will happen is that I think we have tremendous um, opportunities with educational technology for innovation. And there's been so much money getting invested into education technology, but the majority of projects I see, um, I think they're starting on the wrong foot because they're starting with the wrong pedagogy. And I want to see more technology used to connect people and give more opportunities for collaboration rather than the goal of automation, right? Automation, freeing humans up to not do mundane tasks can go a long ways to enable the, uh, the, the helping humans connect and have built healthier relationships. But automation as its own goal without the human part in mind can go in very, very twisted, dark ways. With technology, I think you know even just our ability today to have this conversation with high fidelity audio um, across you know, multiple continents is quite tremendous. Um, and, and these opportunities a couple decades ago, um, it would have been extraordinary um, preparedness and infrastructure to be able to pull what we just did off almost casually here. I, I think there's that opportunity. Um, I just hope there are more education technology people that are looking um, at approaching designing their products in a much more mindful way, putting the human first, the connectivity human first, and uh, freeing up the human capacity to focus on human things. Ted, before we sign off, what is the best way for listeners who are in, more interested in your work to to uh, follow up and, and find out more about you and what you do? So there are... Um, a couple ways to find me. One, I'm very active on Twitter, Ted Fujimoto. And you can go to my website, the consulting practice website, uh, consultlandmark.com. And we also have um, my wife and I launched a organization that is focused on the creative process, goallcreative.com. That is about trying to um, bring um, how super creatives work and um, making that accessible to all different types of audiences who wonder how do these super creators, how they maintain their success. Ted Fujimoto, thank you for your wise words. My pleasure. <laughs>